0: And it is the story of Jonah. And perhaps you have uh, heard this story since childhood, uh, as I have, and as the, the Veggie Tales have done a good job with. Um, but the story might not be about what you think it's about. The theme of the book just might surprise you, as it has surprised me. The theme is not amazing sea life. The theme is not how to be the worst prophet ever. But instead, the theme is this of the book, is God cares about all the peoples of the world, and so should you. And that is what I believe is uh, the theme of the book of Jonah. So just before we start off, we'll spend the next few weeks in Jonah, uh, give you a little bit of the context or the setting of what's going on. This is during uh, the divided kingdom period. You know, maybe around 800 BC, uh, the glory days of David and Solomon are over. The days of one nation under God have given way to a divided nation under judgment, in a lot of lot of turmoil. Uh, this took place under Jeroboam II, who, um, like his namesake Jeroboam I, was not a great king. He was in the north, uh, king in Samaria of the northern kingdom of Israel. And during that time, the kingdom actually made a little bit of recovery, you know, politically. They gained some, some land back that they'd lost. In fact, some of that uh, had been occupied by Nineveh, or or by a common enemy, at least. And uh, so Nineveh is the capital of, of the Assyrian Empire. And I don't know if you've heard lately, Nineveh has been back in the news again. Nineveh is modern-day Mosul, And... Uh, the, the hot point of the conflict with ISIS or ISIL is taking place in Nineveh. And so uh, things we hear about, you know, thousands of years ago in God's word are still taking center stage. Nineveh at this time, or this whole Syrian empire, um, the Bible Knowledge Commentary describes it like this. Nineveh was the capital of one of the cruelest, vilest, most powerful and most idolatrous empires in the world. This how they're they're described, and this is and this is the city that we're going to be talking about in in this book. They are known for just atrocious war crimes. They are infamous for their beheadings of their captives, and for torture and just terrible things. And this is what we know of Nineveh. You know, Jonah has a, a monument tomb that has been in Nineveh uh, for thousands of years and was just recently destroyed by ISIS. Um, so something, you know, historical that's lasted that long uh, still has, has roots, and we see it in the news. So Nineveh's making news again. But when we think of Jonah in the story of, uh, of this little book, uh, what one word usually comes to mind? Just say what. When you think of Jonah, think of what? The whale, okay, so I, I anticipate that's what you're all thinking of. Um, the whale in this chapter gets one line. So I thought I'd introduce what some of the more prominent characters in the story are. Um, so first, the main character is uh, God. I didn't have a good picture of God, so I put up this, whatever it is. And uh, this is Yahweh, the, the covenant God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the, the master of all things. He's the, the main character of the book, and the, the first line starts out introducing him. And then we have uh, Jonah, the man of God. He followed the true uh, God of Israel, the the one true God. And then we're introduced to a bunch of sailors who um, just be classified as just, you know, regular pagans. And I'll use that word throughout this, this message, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but in the way that that maybe. Jonah and the original readers would just talk about, this is just people who, who are not followers of the true God. Um, it's a, a rugged, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, um, you know, bunch of sailors like, like these guys here. And then the other main character in the story is Nineveh, this foreign enemy that they've had conflict with where there's great wickedness and it's this war-torn um, nation and uh, we're just horrible things for going on. So these are the, the main characters, so to speak, in the story. So as we read this and as we study this the next few weeks, I want you to think about who do you most identify with in this story? With God? <laughs> Ho- hopefully not. <laughs> that'd be pretty bold. Um, with, with Jonah, you know, the man of God, the, fo- the follower of the one true God. Uh, with the the pagan sailors, this rugged crew, um, or with Nineveh, the the foreign enemy. Um, Just think about that. Who would you resonate most with in this tale? When I say tale, it's a real true account of things that happened. Um, But the story is told for a very uh, specific purpose and a point for all of us. In the original audience of this letter, they would have all most identified with Jonah. When they read this story, they're like, oh, this, I'm the Jonah character <laughs> in this, and here's what I have to learn. So we have some questions that uh, I'd love for you to think about as we, um, as we go through this ch- first chapter today, and uh, today we have lots of blanks to fill in. If you love to fill in blanks, this is a good day to be at church. So, so three questions. Uh, throughout the passage, we're going to look at who hurled what? I'm going to resist uh, telling my ocean time hurling stories today, but I couldn't resist calling this When God Hurled because there's a lot of hurling that goes on in this sea uh, tale, as we'll see. And Next, we're going to look at uh, what's wrong with this picture, WWWTP for short. There's several times in this chapter where you think something should be one way, and it's really uh, totally the opposite of that, a lot of, a lot of irony in it and a lot of incongruencies, and I think this is right where the author is making his strongest point is by what seems out of place. So we're going to find some things that are what's wrong with this picture. Okay, finally, if that wasn't confusing enough, we're going to look at who used whom to teach a lesson to whom about whom. So we introduced the four characters, and you can fit them in into those slots. If my math is right, I think you can fit them in there 24 different ways, but um, It might be, did the man of God use this foreign enemy to teach the pagans a lesson about God? I mean, that's a feasible scenario. Or did God use the man of God to teach the foreign enemy a lesson about the pagans? You know, you can picture that taking place too. Or what's it going to be? I I won't iterate the other uh, 23 possibilities. Uh, Yeah. So let's just jump in. We're in Jonah chapter 1, starting in the first verse it says this now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai saying arise go to Nineveh that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me see the word of the Lord came to Jonah Uh, Jonah was a prophet this was an oracle an actual God spoke to Jonah and said these things uh the word, so we're talking about a prophet of God here. Really interesting word here, uh, evil. We all think we know what evil means, and I was just kind of pondering that this week. We know that evil means uh, you know, wickedness, uh, sinfulness, but this word also means disaster, harm, trouble. So what does God notice? Because it says uh, God says that the evil of Nineveh came up before me. Was God noticing how uh, wicked they were, or was He noticing how much trouble they were in? And I'm going to suggest He was noticing both, because just like modern day Nineveh, there's a lot of wickedness going on, and there's a lot of trouble and disaster. At this time, besides going through uh, wars with other nations in Assyria and, and inner conflict, there's also two great famines that took place uh, shortly before this time. And also, well, it seems strange, but there's a, a total solar eclipse just before these events. And all this would have had the effect of, you know, the world's coming apart. You know, this is just terrible. They were in great distress, uh, great trouble. And God looks down, and he sees all this wickedness going on and he sees they're in such a mess and in such a trouble, such a dire strait, just like now. And uh, God takes notice. And he says to Jonah, go there. And what did Jonah, the follower of God, do? (laughs) Verse 3, but Jonah, he rose and he fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship uh, going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. It says that word three times, and I can't say it with a, a mild lisp I have. And away from the presence of the Lord. So here is our first uh, what's wrong with this picture, is that God told the man of God, go, and the man of God hid, or he, he ran, he fled. God says, you know, do this, and he does the exact opposite that uh, God tells them. And this is the prophet of the Lord does this. And this is, you know, it does not compute. Uh, it says twice in this, uh, this verse, away from the presence of the Lord. And I see two big problems with that. One is it's always a bad idea to try to run away from the presence of the Lord, right? The second thing I find wrong with that is Why does the prophet of the Lord think he can run away from the presence of the Lord? Um, He knows God is everywhere. He may have been familiar with this Psalm uh, 139, 7 to 10, that says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. The sea. (laughs) Even there your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I just wonder have you ever just felt God's nudging? (laughs) You've sensed his spirit? Or you're reading in in scripture and your heart is just kind of pricked of man I I should not be doing this and I should be doing this. And then instead of giving thought to that, instead of obeying that and running in that direction, we go the other way, or we hide, or we stay busy, and we try to stay away from the presence of the Lord. Well, for us, it's the same two things that are wrong. One is it's always a bad idea to run from the presence of the Lord, and secondly, um, it doesn't even make sense because he's everywhere. So little side lesson lesson from Jonah. Okay, let's continue with the story. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. So, of course, here we have the first hurling happening in, in this chapter. And that's when God hurled a massive wind on the sea. And uh, these are not the kind of vessels that we would go out um, now <laughs> in the ocean, the great big ocean. Um, they're, it's scary enough now you know, when the wind really picks up. But this would have been absolutely terrifying and life-threatening. So God hurls the wind. Verse 5, Then the mariners, they were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Okay, more hurling. The sailors hurled the cargo. If you're keeping score. In verse six, so the captain came to to him and said, "What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise up and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish." I kind of pondered this this conversation or this scene of what was going on, and I thought, "This is definitely." Another, what went wrong with this picture? (laughs) The pagans, this group of rough and tumble, you know, multi religious uh, sailors, were praying earnestly, and the man of God was sleeping. In fact, it was the the pagan captain that had to come and try to convince uh, Jonah that he should be praying. And it's like, this does not compute. What is wrong with this picture? Have you ever been reminded to, to pray or to think uh, heavenly thoughts uh, by someone who wasn't even a follower of Christ? You know, maybe by somebody's life or a comment they make. We're like, ooh, yeah, you know, I should have been the one that said that. Or I should have been the one that thought that. Or I should have been first to take note of that. Little, little jabs throughout this, this chapter. Verse 7 and they said to one another, these are, you know, the sailors, come let us cast lots, you know, some kind of, you know, rolling of the dice, or choosing the short straw, or however they did it, um, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. I just notice how evil is used there. It's What, you know, the disaster they're in, they're talking about. So they did, they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? (laughs) It's kind of embarrassing. Well, I'm a prophet. (laughs) And where do you come from, and what's your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, he fesses up, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the what? the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, even though that's impossible, because he had told them. What's wrong with this picture three? The man of God says he worships God while he is actually hiding from God. When Jonah tells who he is, he says, I fear Yahweh. I am a Hebrew. I am this, this man of God, this worshiper of the Lord, and that's why I am running off in the opposite direction and hiding in the bottom of your ship. And so, again, does not compute, does not look uh, good for, um, for Jonah. And the response is, what is this thing you have done? Saying your one thing and doing another thing. Isaiah 29 uh, speaks about this problem. It says, and so the Lord says, these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. So God has this serious accusation about those who, who worship just with their words. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm the man of God. I'm the woman of God. Yeah, I believe in God in their life looks different jesus had very just pointed harsh things to say about those who who spoke of being just the religious uh elite but their lives and hearts didn't uh, align with that he had very very hard things to say that we need to embrace and take to heart because you know what? hypocrisy is really offensive to god when we worship him just with our our lips and hypocrisy is really offensive to the world. This is an accusation that people have brought against the church, saying, well, you say this, but you live this. When, we, when our, our claims to be followers of Jesus don't align with how we just treat people in our neighborhood, <laughs> with the way we do business, with the way we, uh, we post things online, with the way we, we talk to you know, our, our friends or our enemies, so to speak, if, there, if there's an incongruency there, then this message is, is against us. God doesn't like that when our words do not line up with our actions. And that's what was happening there. And uh, when the pagans were looking at Jonah, they looked at him and they said, What in the world are you doing? <laughs> what is going on here? And then they continued on and said this, verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, oh, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Well, this group of sailors, they... um, you know, they were probably glad that they didn't get the short straw, but they were also hesitant to just throw a man, you know, over sea and let him drown on their watch. It says, so nevertheless, verse 13, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they, but they could not. The sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And therefore, they called out to the Lord. They said, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Interesting. A lot of, uh, a lot of Bible translations, when they, uh, they use the name Yahweh, they use all capital uh, Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps. Uh, the ESV does that, New American Standard, and some other versions. That's to designate that, that covenant um, personal name of God. This is the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob whereas uh, Elohim would be a word that just means God in general, like supreme being. And so God is, is the Lord God. He's, he's Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, and he is the God of all things. And so in this, uh, if you have one of those uh, translations, verse 14, three times it uses L-O-R-D, all capitals. So this group of Multi ethnic, multi religious uh, people um, are calling out on the God of Israel by name. They're saying, O Lord Yahweh, let us not perish. And, O Lord Yahweh, you have done it as pleased you. They're acknowledging and worshiping the true God. It's incredible. Because what's wrong with this picture number four? The pagans pray to the true God while we never once in this whole chapter see the man of God praying. We never see him addressing God. Uh, God himself comes and speaks to Jonah, gives him a divine oracle, so to speak. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, and Jonah never is recorded as talking back. (laughs) Uh, He received this message, and he just ran for his life. Um, and here we have uh, the pagan sailors ca- crying out to the true God and worshiping him. Jesus told a parable of, of two sons in Matthew 21, and uh, the father told the first son, you know, go and do this thing, and the son said, uh, no, I'm not going to do it, but then he he went ahead and did it, and the second son said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. But then he didn't do it. And here's the conclusion of that. In in verse 31, Jesus asked, which of these two did the will of his father? And they said, the the first. You know, the one that says, no, 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 I'm not going to, you know, follow your directions, but then ends up doing it. The first is the one who truly did his will. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they go into the kingdom of God before you. Jesus says, look at all these people who, you know, you label as, you know, sinner. He's like, they, in many cases, they're showing you up. (laughs) You need to learn a lesson from them. Um, You need to, um, you need to let that sink into your heart and follow with your lips and follow with your actions as well. Of course, it's better if you say you'll do it and you do it, you know, not to, not start off by saying you won't do it, but the point is obedience with life. Jonah is looking um, rather lame <laughs> in this whole account, and uh, I think it's, it's interesting. Uh, apparently, Jonah wrote uh, the book, and uh, so I think eventually he really got it, and this is uh, kind of a self-defacing uh, uh, way to describe what happened and is a really powerful point that, that he makes in all of it. But as it unfolds to us, it's like, Jonah, could it be any more ridiculous? Okay, verse 15. Ready for hurl number three. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. The men feared the Lord, Yahweh, exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. So, the sailors hurled Jonah. And th- when they do that, the storm miraculously stops. Um, I always wonder just how quickly that happened. If it's kind of the winds died down and then it kind of settled or if it's just bam, you know, it's, it's glassy. That would have been a uh, fun to be part of, but it was whatever happened. It was obviously the Lord and it was obviously miraculous that was going on. And so here's what the sailors did. They feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows, always to describe that these guys started worshiping the true God. They, they feared, they revered the Lord God, made offerings to him, made promises to him. And uh, it's just incredible. And what's uh, Jonah doing while the pagans are worshiping the true God? Uh, he's treading water. <laughs> The pagans worship God while the man of God just watches this take place. Maybe he's, he's floating just a little ways off from the ship and he sees this rough and tumble group of sailors, you know, worshiping uh, his God, <laughs> making offerings to his God, you know, calling out vows to his God while he just treads water and watches from a distance. Well, this fish story has a lot of implications for us. <laughs> Uh, let's, let's finish the story, and then let's talk about some of those implications. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. As a side note, besides hurling, this word appointed is something that occurs uh, multiple times in this book. It's kind of a unique word, and we're going to see that's a little bit of, of a theme going on as well. I think this is the first time it shows up in the book, though, is, is in verse 17 of first chapter Okay. Then, with side note, and the Lord appointed this great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So, to come to the book of Jonah, I just feel like I have to say that don't get so hung up on the whale. Um, we wonder, is it fish or whale? I, I just have to say, fish. You know, great fish. It's not a. Um, it's not a biological classification. It's. It just means um, a large thing that lives in the in the ocean, you know, in the water. So this could have been, you know, things that still exist around, um, you know, a sperm whale, they're pretty huge. They've been known to swallow enormous things. Or, um, or a whale shark, they're enormous. You know, there's, there's reports of, of things that, that say, oh, with, with animals we know exist, is, uh, this is feasible. But really, that's, that's not the point. The point is it's a miracle. <laughs> um, it's not trying to track down, you know, such a creature it's saying, oh, this is what what God did. And I think it's interesting that in this whole chapter, um, we see the only creature who does not immediately respond to God is Jonah, <laughs> the man of God. Uh, the whale, <laughs> the fish, you know, does. Uh, the wind responds immediately, both coming up and going away. And... Uh, and yet, here's Jonah. He can't quite figure it out. Um, so I think all this leads us to the fourth and final hurl. This whole story is God hurling a massive insult. <laughs> we, don't, we don't think of God as doing insults, but, but he instructs us in a variety of ways, and I think this is, this is one of them. He, uh, he has this accusation against Jonah and people like Jonah. And this whole account says, oh, man or woman of God, you think you're better than other people, but you've been put to shame by those who don't even believe in me. It's like, ouch, that really hurts. You know, God knows how to even make a good insult. That's, he's, he's incredible. So here's, here's the lesson and, and again, some, some implications. The story is just full of irony, which is kind of fun. And here's a lesson. God uses, if you're filling in all those blanks, God uses the pagans to teach the man of God a lesson about the foreign enemy. So the lesson he taught Jonah is, uh, yes, I was really serious when I said I cared about the Ninevites. When Jonah said, your life is expendable, I want to send you to Nineveh. I think Jonah... And the original audience reading this letter had this ranking in their their minds, kind of this order of maybe worth worthiness, um, priorities. I, I assume they'd put God at the top, on paper at least, even if that doesn't always pan out in daily decisions. You know, God, he's at the top. Then then there's Jonah, you know, the followers of the God of Israel, you know, his people. Uh, religious people. And then below them are, are just the regular old pagans, you know, people we do business with, the sailors in this ship, people we trade with, etc. And then it's like, oh, I'll give you the shivers. The Ninevites are way down there on the bottom. We don't even you know, like to think about them existing. And I think in their minds they would have had this, you know, real hierarchy. And what the first chapter of Dona Jonah does is shake that all up. And mess that up for for Jonah and people like him, because we see in every way the sailors out uh, outdid Jonah in, in following the Lord, so all of a sudden you know he gets he gets bumped down and uh, then it gets even worse the message that he was bringing is that uh, the Ninevites caught god 's attention and Jonah is expendable. Um, God wants to send them to the land of the Ninevites. And so all of a sudden the Ninevites take this priority. And it's just would be mind-blowing for, uh, for this culture that this story was first um, uh, given the account of. I would suggest that sometimes in our minds, if not on paper, <laughs> we slide into this same kind of classification where we think, yes, God's up there, yeah, he's, he's priority, you know, on my, my good days, I I live that way. And then, you know, it's me and people who believe like me, you know, we're, we're next. And then it's just like the average Joe that we do business with and, you know, that lives in the neighborhood, they don't believe in God and they just kind of, you know, do whatever. And then we have these things in our mind of these foreign, you know, enemies that are like, oh, they... You know, they live in other parts of the world and, and there's just this wickedness in and we just, we just put them at the very bottom. And maybe that's, you know, we think of, you know, atheist North Korea or, or, or the Islamic nations supporting um, ISIS or, or radical Hinduism in India that's, you know, increasing. And we think of these little pockets of places where terrible things are going on and we, we put them in a different classification. And then God gives us this gift of Jonah and shakes it all up for us and says, no, it's really not that way. It's really not that way at all. In fact, here's the big idea. The whole theme of the book, again, is that God cares for all the peoples of the world, and so should you, and so should I. That's the theme of the book, and I think the theme of the first chapter is this that sometimes God uses unbelievers to teach uh, his children a lesson. <laughs> he instructs us by those who don't even you know, claim to be followers of, of Christ. And I started to think, you know, how, how does this happen now? You know, where, where might this be taking place in our world? And I, I just thought of, I just want to throw some of these out here just as possible possibilities for us. Sometimes we, we hear of uh, celebrity uh, philanthropy. People who, um, you know, I don't know if they're musicians or, or whatever, and they give huge sums of money for causes, you know, for disaster aid or whatever. And I think sometimes a knee-jerk reaction is, oh, that's for PR, or, or they're doing that to appease their conscience. Or, you know, we just th- think of, you know, why I think instead it should prick our conscience a little bit. Like, ouch, somebody that doesn't even claim Follow Jesus is making this enormous, generous gifts. Um, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? I think maybe sometimes we look at the religious um, ritual or, or customs of, of some groups, and we think, like, "Oh, that's, that's backwards or, 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 or crazy, or like, "Ah, they don't know what's going on, and we, we downplay it. But maybe we should take a lesson from the zeal. Lord, what would you have me do? Sometimes we just don't understand. Years ago, I went to a, to a mosque. This is a really long time ago. And uh, we went in, and they separated uh, the men and the women. And kind of knee-jerk is like, oh, that's so you know old-fashioned and awkward or something. And one of the guys there just explained just real practically, a lot of, of the worship service is, is prostrating in rows on the ground. And he just made this comment, not to be crass, but you would think about your worshiping and there's just ladies just bending over in front of you. It's just distracting to the worship uh, service. So we just separate in different areas. It kind of this real sort of practical comment, like, I just did you not know, really thought of it down that road. But so instead of this knee-jerk, like, oh, we think, how's my zeal? <laughs> how's how's my, my level of commitment? But honestly, sometimes people outside the church are, are ahead of the church in racial reconciliation in some other areas. And instead of thinking, oh, they're just trying to be ultra PC, think, God, what would you have me do? What lesson is there for me? E- even things like caring for the environment. <laughs> God's like, hey, take care of this. Be stewards of this. And, uh, and some are doing a better job than we are. Even things like just being an accepting uh, community of people with with problems and and rough around the edges, I know there's situ- there's uh, communities outside the church where pretty much anybody could just walk in and feel comfortable, but sometimes people walk into churches and they feel really uncomfortable because of that. This could be a stretch, but even the the fraternity and community in, in the, the gang life is a, is a lesson about, you know, loyalty in and, and these things. We're, I, obviously, I'm not promoting the gang life or any of these other things at all, but I'm saying, you know, something can poke at our hearts and say, they have something. They've figured something out. They're, they're grasping at something, and even though they don't know Christ, they could teach us. And even just being socially concerned about homelessness or, or, you know, diseases and abuse in the world, sometimes we're outdone. And what I'm suggesting is a book like Jonah is intended to prick our heart and say, Lord, what would you have me do? Step down out of my little hierarchy and uh, just put God up there and all the rest of us are here <laughs> and fall before him and worship him, not just with our lips, but with our whole lives. Here's what I'd kind of like to suggest is that sometimes we get hung up on the whale in Jonah because the real message is, sorry for the pun, but it's too hard to swallow. It's a lot easier to believe that somebody, a, you know, survived three days in a whale than it is sometimes to realize oh i've i've been outdone <laughs> and uh i need to i need to confess and lay before the lord and say sorry let's let's have a redo here Re- recalibrate me and and take that that point that the lord is giving here is i think our our challenge in all this whoops i went too far well i'll just tell you the real challenge is when God hurls an insult, don't duck. <laughs> don't, don't dodge it. When, when, uh, when something in the scripture pricks out our hearts, don't, uh, don't deflect that and say, oh, but this, or but they don't understand this, or oh, but that. Instead, just say, Lord, what, what do you have for me? What do you want to teach me? And especially, as we'll see throughout the book of Jonah, Lord, what do you want to teach me about your love for the whole world? Your care for the disasters that are taking place around the, the globe. And uh, Lord, what, what's your heart for that? And make that uh, my heart as well. And that, I think, is the real point of Jonah. And uh, so look forward to un- unfolding the rest of it with you over these next few weeks. And uh, I, hope that was, um, I hope that was refreshing as it was for me to think, what is God really telling us in the book of Jonah? besides about the whale. So uh, would you just pray with me?